I'm Letitia, host of the New Leaf podcast, created for new and working mums everywhere. Over the course of this series, I interview women from a variety of industries to share their journeys of what happened to their professional and personal identities when they had their babies and headed back to work, exploring the good, the bad, and the ugly. The motherhood space can be a scary one, but it doesn't have to be. By interviewing women in all spaces and lines of work and sharing their different experiences, I want to show you that there is no one right way and that we're all kind of winging it. My mission is to revolutionize the way we look at pregnancy, birth and motherhood, taking the judgment, pressure and expectations out and putting the confidence back in so that one day we can all say that it's my motherhood, my choice. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at New Leaf Podcast if you want to continue the conversation with the hashtag MyMotherhoodMyChoice. Right, let's get on with my intro to my next lovely guest. Before we begin, I've got something extra special. Click the episode details to subscribe to New Leaf Nutshell, my exclusive monthly write-up straight to your phone, to break down and summarize some of the most controversial motherhood topics in a nutshell. Right now, I'm settling the breast and bottle debate for anyone who's struggling with breastfeeding, where I've referenced nearly 100 academic articles to give you impartial and well-researched advice with none of the judgment. Doing all the Googling so you don't have to. Mary Daniels is a lady of many, many hats. Mum of one and until recently, stepmom of three, She now travels the world, when it's allowed, that is, mentoring, coaching, running retreats, designing programs to empower women and young people, and is a published author of an incredible book entitled Wild Awakening, The Nine Questions That Saved My Life. She's currently a consultant working for a human rights group and has also done a TED Talk on her experiences. Mary is a frequently booked speaker on her incredible life story and attitude towards living and self-help. And having now heard it all myself, I'm not at all surprised as to why. We work together at NCS, or the National Citizen Service, an enormous social enterprise helping young people all over the UK. And although I had no idea at the time the extent of her talents or the darkness in her past, it was blindingly obvious to everybody who worked with her that there was definitely something about Mary. I just wanted to say before we start that although I promise this journey has a happy ending, We do talk briefly about sexual violence and in some more detail about maternal mental health, postnatal depression and psychosis, suicide and abuse. I wanted to just be upfront with you about this. If it's not for you, no problem. Just click the fast forward button on the episode as you listen. Mary's childhood was a pretty stormy one to say the least and never in a million years would you guess it. You'll know exactly what I mean as she starts speaking. She laughs often and freely and is relentlessly sunny and upbeat. With spells of being fostered, Mary suffered from life-changing, serious abuse from her own father. She was removed from her home at 17, became a stepmom at 19 to three children under five, and then a mum herself at 21 with a man who was 16 years her senior. She was also trying to run two businesses and deal with a deeply upsetting rift in her relationship. The relationships described in this episode really made me think about the fine line in our families and romances. Passion, love, control and coercion can too often become intermingled and more of us than we think 
have perhaps had a partner like this at one time or another, where with the highs come enormous lows. Mary's harrowing experiences in this vein made me reflect a great deal about what this must do to those people who suffer self-confidence and approach to life, and how confusing abuse must be. Mary ended up standing on the edge of Tower Bridge with her baby boy about to jump, before something intervened in her life. The rest is a wild and winding story to get her to where she is now, doing what she absolutely loves with incredible success and optimism, despite an impossible past. Introducing Mary Daniels. Welcome, Mary. Hi, Tish. (laughs) Thank you for having me. (laughs) Mary and I knew each other about four years ago, and I can't remember what you were doing for NCS. It's so funny. I don't even think the people who brought me in knew what I was doing. <laughs> that was the running joke. It's like, we love Mary, but we don't know what she's doing. No, I think a lot of the work was really helping them as they transitioned and grew around their vision, people, ethos, purpose. So a bit of everything, really. So where are you in the world right now? And what can you see in front of you? Okay, so I am in beautiful East Devon. I've got two views. To my left, I have the sea and trees and just that gorgeous autumnal colour. It's beautiful. And the Jurassic coastline. And directly in front of me, I have boxes and paperwork and chaos because I'm clearing out and getting rid of things. So I have these two just completely contradicting views around me. I love it. Absolutely love it. How long have you been there for? I moved down maybe four or five years ago. Were you London before that? London born, London based. I thought I was going to be one of those people that died in London. You know, I always used to say, and my friends who live in the countryside are horrified. I would say, you only move to the countryside to die. <laughs> I, used to be, I, was just like, I was such a city girl. I was, in my head, it was like, it's only when you want to retire and you're almost winding down in life. That's why people move outside of the city to the countryside. So it's a sort of long preparation to death. Such a cheery way of describing it. Wonderful. But that's clearly changed. <laughs> so what prompted the move? I'm really fixated on this move. Like London to Devon is yes. such a contrast. Really is. And I had I had been to Dorset a few times and where I worked at the time, they used to take every year a group of us down to this amazing place in Dorset. And I fell in love with that. And I just found it so relaxing. But if I'm honest, I always say that I got kicked out of London. And, um, and the reason is, you said when you get to that place in life, I think where whether you like it or not, life is going to move you on. It doesn't matter how much you resist. It's when something's done, it's done and all the doors close. And I think that's what happened with me with London. My son went off to uni. I was pretty burnt out without realising it. But yeah, I was just completely depleted. I couldn't breathe. I was missing nature. It was just so many doors were closing. My relationship had come to an end a few years prior, but it'd been an 18-year relationship. So to untangle that when you are co-parenting, it's actually quite a lot. Even though in the relationship, I knew, I'd known for a while it was time to leave it, but we worked together. We were actually really good friends. There's no issue between us at all. But when your lives are so intertwined, it takes a while to untangle that. But everything was just ending. There were lots of endings. And I just needed to rest. 
And I actually just decided to camp for a while. And I'm not a natural camper. No idea where that thought that I could camp came from. (laughs) So I don't even know if it's like holistically correct you're allowed to say this. So very early days of NCS before it was the amazing trust that we knew. But my job was basically to recruit all the staff and they were opening it up in nine regions, this youth programme and week one involved camping and we had to hire 120 staff across these regions. I started to go around promoting the benefits of camping. And I was quite honest, I was just, I just don't think black people camp. That's what I just used to say to people. But my family were laughing and they got it. They were just like, yeah, do you know, we know what you mean. Um, I can't believe this is out there on my podcast. I know, but I'm, like, I'm just like, I don't think just black people just don't camp. And I know there are a lot of all of you black people out there who love camping. I get it. There are a horde of people of colour who love camping. I was in that camp where it just was alien to me. But I did. We camped because we had to take these teenagers away for the weekend. You have to walk your talk. So I did it. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I loved the hiking. I loved being in nature. I just loved it. I really loved it. But I hadn't done it for such a long time. So this friend had this space and another friend of mine is a massive camper. And she was like, let's go and spend the summer there and rethink what you want to do with your future and blah, blah, blah. You camped for a whole summer? Do the whole summer. Okay. (laughs) I realised that the tent that I had bought was great for a couple of nights camping for a whole month in a tent where you have to come bum first out of it completely impractical so um three weeks <laughs> Wait, still that's weeks plural rather than like hours or days so I'm impressed yeah it was fun it was fun I camped as a child and have vowed hereafter <laughs> my very Scottish husband who's just like a complete stereotype like he'd run up a mountain naked in a kilt in December that's his sort of style it. and his mission in life is to get me to camp and I'm like do you have you, have you met me like, <laughs> <laughs> it's not happening So, well, it sounds like you're in a very nice area of the world. And I always ask people this because I think people's views really affect, as in literal views, what you can see out your window, really affect our ability to be creative. So have you found that it's affected your work and stuff since you've been there? How's it changed? It's really fascinating you say that because it's really changed my relationship with the natural world. I'm somebody that that tends to just take on multiple projects, work at full speed, I was still commuting way too much back and forth to London and work took me overseas. And actually, whilst COVID has been just horrific for so many people for so many reasons, the benefits of having to, yeah, I think just be still in one space for me made me realise that I cannot continue on this path of running around physically as well as mentally. If I was still in London now, I think I'd be in hospital. I really, oh God, yeah, really? I genuinely believe that the pace I was working at in London was insane, absolutely insane. And leaving London has really shown me that. It is parasitic. It really is. And I think for some people, they can find their, their rhythm in the city and they love it. And there's something about that vibe. And actually, just before I moved to Devon, A good friend of mine who lives in Holland came to visit me and she's just so, I've never met anyone like her. She can just sense things in an incredible way. And she said to me, this is the last time I will visit you in London. 
And at the time, I hadn't even planned on leaving London. It wasn't even in my awareness. And she said, the next time I come and visit you, I'm going to have to work out how to get down to the southwest. And I was laughing. Oh, that's, that's so weird. Yeah, I was like, there's no way. And she said, no, it's killing you. It's sucking the life out of you. And you will only realise that when you leave. I'm going to get loads of angry DMs from people now saying like, London's great, what's wrong with London? But I think it's very interesting what you say about people finding their rhythm and it being great for a period of time. I think I had that period, it just was about two weeks long. And then after that, I felt like it was just enduring. I felt Mm. like I was just enduring London all the time. And I just wasn't up for having my face in someone's armpit on the tube every morning. It was just not for me. So I'm not surprised that you're now in the Southwest and how amazing that friend just picks up on that. It's true. And just to to add to that, because it is, I think it is an important thing, even when you're thinking about where you want to settle, especially with kids and the sort of lifestyle and that sense of connection to oneself. What I realised in London is you don't realise it, but your system is just being bombarded, constantly bombarded, just with the amount of information and commuting. And we're absorbing it without realising it. And we have to find ways to release that. And sometimes it's healthy, but other times it can be really unhealthy, whether it's binge drinking, constantly entertaining ourselves externally and going out, whatever it is to keep that energy moving or we shut down as a survival because it's a lot. So I think that's why when I talk about leaving London to really breathe and almost come alive again, it's because my system was just overloaded. Yeah, the the sensory input, I think, is a really interesting one and all the different crutches and compensatory things that you do. Mm. And you you do reach for the external. That's what your salary ends up going on. It's stuff to make yourself feel better. And then when you've got children, how expensive that is to just literally raise a child in the city. And I was very privileged, very lucky. We worked and were able to send most of the children, they went to private school and they had a great education, but it was friggin' expensive. It oh, was yeah. ridiculous. Unfortunately, I could wax lyrical about London for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, guys, not supposed yeah. to be that opinionated, yeah, but it's all right. coming out now. Yeah. <laughs> and so, look, tell me about your immediate family unit. You talked about your previous partner of 18 years and co parenting, etc., but who's in your unit now? Yes. So at the moment, my unit has been reduced down to myself and my son. And so when I was with my ex-partner, he had three boys before I met him. And they are amazing young men and love them to bits. So I was sort of this part-time stepmom to them. So when we were originally together, the youngest was one. So it was one, three and four and a half. And then I fell pregnant a year later with my son. So we had four boys just, yeah, between the ages of sort of naught to five and a half. And it was insane. So this sort of the core unit has been us two for a few years and mm. loving to bits. And how old is your son? He's just turned 25. He's very, he's fiercely independent. And yet life seems to always bring him back home maybe between a year. So we'll see, yeah, we'll see how long this one lasts. (laughs) (laughs) So as in he goes away again and then comes back for an extended period. Yes. And he knows that there's always a place at home. I think because I didn't grow up with that. When I left home, and I left home quite a youngish age in that I was 17, but I wasn't ready to leave home. It was just the environment at home wasn't safe enough for me to be at home any longer. 
So I was actually removed from my home environment. And after that, it dawned on me that I could never go back to my room or go back to the family home. And at the time when you're young, I think it it took me a while to get my head around what that meant because you're bouncing around doing stuff. And there was sort of those windows where I could have just done with having somewhere I knew I could definitely go back to, but to just drop your bag, flop on the bed, figure out your next steps. And I think having that removed really changed actually my direction in life. And I think it made me take some choices I might not have said yes to because they were offering a sense of security. So I really promised myself that, especially when I split up from my ex, that my focus with him is that he'd always have a room and a bed and somewhere he could come home to no matter what and just take as much time as he needed to figure things out before he went back out into the world again. And you said that you had three stepsons that were really young when you were first with your ex-partner. And has that been a weird transition to make? When I was in this role of just being this, like a a mum and a sort of big sister, it was a really weird combination because I was so young at the time. I fell pregnant when I was 21 and I met my partner when I was 19 and he was 16 years older than me. So I think I definitely I went through my early adult years just in a haze, a very reactive, very in the moment, no plan, no thought. I didn't even have time to consider what this meant. I adored the kids. I'd been a nanny before, had been babysitting. I adored them. For me, there was no difference between the boys and my son when he came along. Absolutely adored them. But they also had to respect the fact they also had their mother. And and I really consciously stayed out of the parenting decisions. So I invested a lot in the boys willingly, absolutely without any resentment or regrets whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So I think when we separated, it took myself and my ex probably a year to tell the kids that we had separated because one was traveling, one had moved back with the mum. They were in parts of the world where it took a while for them to figure out that we weren't together. So we were still in the same house, then we would meet, you know, pick them up together. So it was tricky, really tricky. I think even as a couple, it took us a while to wind that down. And I felt very shut out of that space for quite a while because it had gone back to sort of their, you know, mum and dad for them and then Mary because I hadn't got that official role anymore. It sounds like you've invested a huge amount into thinking about their feelings of security and structure. And I'm sure the listeners are doing this as well, doing the maths in my head, thinking, okay, well, you were removed from your home at 17 or 18, and then were in a new relationship at 19, then a mom again at 21. And also probably a mom again at 19 with these three little boys as well. That must have been a hugely stressful time and such a trauma to still be living through to have been removed from your family home at such a recent age as well so what was going on at that time I'm 47 and um, it still jolts me even though I've written about my journey when I reflect back on my childhood and that transition time from leaving home a lot was going on so I would come from a very split family environment so had been fostered when I was a few weeks old and was in foster care until about five then I was moved back in with my birth parents who had moved from Ghana to the UK in their early 20s. There were six of us in total. And I think they had a lot going on that they hadn't thought through. 
they were just very reactive in their lives. And it was a new country, a black couple in quite a racist time in the UK, if I'm really honest. And I think that was something that especially my father had to navigate because he worked in quite a prestigious bank. And just the sort of racist slurs and things that were thrown, you know, you felt it as a child. And I think he was struggling to be accepted and seen as an equal and a super intelligent man, super intelligent, but dysfunctional. That whole environment was dysfunctional. I think when you don't know who you are and you're in an alien environment and you haven't really got enough grounding and enough of a compass within yourself to really manage boundaries, I think all of that spills over into the family life. And it was just a very abusive environment. So fun and a tight family unit on one side, very abusive, very dysfunctional, very violent, every form of abuse you can think of on the other. And it just messes with you when you've got two completely opposing ways of parenting happening under one roof and experiences. You just don't know who you are. You can become very lost and very easily influenced looking for who you are in your external environment. And so when I was 17, I'd moved from a private Catholic convent school to a grammar school because I wanted to be with my brother and sister and I had to get A's for the permission to move. And so I changed schools. It just it all unraveled and it got to the point where it physically was unsafe. It just wasn't safe for me to be at home just the violence, sexual abuse. Yeah, ended up actually being raped at 17 in my home environment. And a teacher reported it and they stepped in and I was taken into care with a teacher and his wife in the school. And again, it was all messed up because the headmaster of the school was friends with my father because they went to church together. So he oh couldn't get God. his head around it because we were really well known in the community and really well respected. So it was all, it was just... It just was a mess. <laughs> I mean, no... for want of a better word, just what a head fuck. Yeah. Like, I mean, and what was going through my head is that it's just the total contradiction. And you saying your father was really big on education and just those normal things that you expect to hear from parents wanting the best for their children. And then just having this complete bizarre contradiction of behavior at home and the violence contrasted with love or care or I just I don't even know how you could interpret normal relationships after that yes and that is the thing that it it takes a long time I think to realize the amount of damage that kind of upbringing does and I've always been positive always been and not because I've tried to be positive but I was just born that way even my father used to say that where he would be really violent in one moment. And my parents would say, then we'd hear you laughing in the room five minutes later with your brother because they'd crack a joke. Or we just, something would happen. And that's just something I've inherently been born with, this love for humour and laughter and the ability to just jump into whatever's present at that time. And it has really saved me. I have to say it's really saved me. It's also meant that I have lived quite a chaotic life where I've gone with what has just felt right. So I will jump mm. into things without planning or thinking or sometimes even working out, do I really want this long term or is it just because I'm enjoying this right now? So you don't know who you are and you do shut down in some areas and you are vulnerable to others because you haven't developed in other areas. 
when you're in a constant flight or fright situation at home and the anxiety is high and you're treading on eggshells, any external love that comes your way, you hang on to it as a really big thing. And so genuinely, I love my ex-partner, but total disaster in one way, but we're friends and I do love him. And he would acknowledge that as well. He has given me a beautiful son. He was so loving and caring in his own way. He was really big on providing for the family, but we were suddenly parents. And actually the two of us were quite chaotic parents but we both have this entrepreneurial spirit we both have this kind of go for it and have fun and live life and so he would do cool things with the kids amazing stuff and suddenly we'd be like okay we're gonna take one off out of school for a year because he's not got confidence and travel and homeschool you know we just did things without thinking about the consequences which is great on one hand but not on the other <laughs> so <laughs> At the same time, it sounds as though, yes, things were unplanned and spontaneous. That really simple thing that you referred to before of always having somewhere that they can flop down, come in, dump their bag and go and rest. Even if you were spontaneous, it doesn't sound like you've ever been inconsistent. And those are two very different things. Yes. And they definitely did have some element of structure. You know, he'd been a teacher. I had in my summer holidays work with children and stuff. So we knew between us and he was a strange combination of very disciplined, old school discipline, military background, parents from Scotland, really quite for contained humour. And it was a really strange mix, but had a lot of benefits to it. And I brought a different kind of container in the caring and trying to help them understand who they were and really think things through and I think it mattered to me that they came and whenever they were with us it felt like home and it really mattered to me that they believed in themselves as human beings. I'm just wanting to take us back to that time where you had just had your son and you were also pseudo mummy, stepmom to three other boys. And usually I ask people what they did pre-baby, but it sounds like you were still a baby pre-baby. So was work something that was even on your mind? And was the pregnancy something that you'd planned? Was it always in your mind that that was going to happen? Or what was going on at that time? Funny enough, pre-baby, I was actually running my second business. Moving at a million miles now, and I look back on it now, it's crazy. So I decided to start a business in Holland, and my ex had had a business in Holland, and I just thought I could commute from Bristol to Holland every week. And so I'd managed to squeeze my lectures into a Monday, Tuesday, got on the overnight coach. And then it was an overnight, seven, eight, I can't remember how many hours journey, and I had to sleep through it, and then work in Holland for the second half of the week. And I did that for a short time, and then just decided that university was really underwhelming for me it wasn't hitting the spot at all and I moved to Holland and I was there for a couple of years and then because of my ex and the boys and him really wanting to be together I moved back to the UK now I didn't think that I could um, fall pregnant I had been told that there was a high chance I couldn't ever have children and so we've been together for a year i what's the point of taking any form of contraception or being on the pill? If I can't have kids, why am I putting myself through this torture? Because it, I didn't respond well to the pill and I was ill quite a lot. So I just stopped. 
And so for a year, nothing happened. And I made peace. I think I finally accepted that I would just be a great mum to these three boys. So I started another business at the time with my ex. We were doing really well. Had a team, had an office, lived in a great part of London, a really good lifestyle on the outside. Everything seemed perfect. And I found out I was pregnant and it was definitely not planned. In fact, it was such a shock. I think it took me 11 weeks to realise I was pregnant. I, think it- I mean, if you're not expecting it at all, no. I can completely understand that. And I actually know somebody who didn't find out they were pregnant until they were 20 weeks. Wow. Yeah. And because she'd also thought that she wouldn't be able to. So she just, I don't know, she'd just written it off psychologically. Yeah, and I was throwing up as well. I thought I had food poisoning. <laughs> and I was uh, throwing up. <laughs> and it was actually the girls in the office. So one of them came up to me and she's like, Mary, I think you need to take a pregnancy test. I was like, no, we went on holiday to Wales a few. We had this story and they were like, that was two weeks ago. And food poisoning doesn't last that long. <laughs> I was adamant, I just said food poisoning. So naive. So yeah. So you, was- didn't, so you didn't find out at all until you were 11 weeks? No. Yeah. I didn't find, and it was just because I literally started to throw up every day for a couple of weeks. And then my ex just came home one day with a pregnancy test just to find out. And I think we didn't speak. When we looked at it, we actually just didn't speak. I think we, I don't know how long it took for us to to actually have a conversation. I think we were in such shock that we just didn't speak for hours about it. We just carried on. What a mixture of emotions because A, you were so young still. So 21 is really young. And also running your casually second really successful business by the sounds of it. And then also having existing very young three stepsons. And perhaps your partner thought that ship has sailed. No more kids for me. So obviously you said shock, but were you happy? I wasn't unhappy. I think I, I genuinely was just shocked. Because it had taken me that whole year to accept naturally I wouldn't give birth. And, it, you know, I'd grieved through all of that. And I'd really let that go. But I knew I was going to keep the baby. You know, it wasn't a question. And I personally am not somebody that is aligned to abortion. But I really understand. I've had friends who have had to make that hard decision. And I've supported them all the way. I believe it's very much a personal choice, but it wasn't a choice that I wanted to make. And so I think underneath all of that, even though he said, what do you want to do? Do you want to keep the baby? I think he knew it was going to be a yes. I knew from him it was going to be a yes. I respect the fact that he asked me though and allowed that to be my choice. But yeah, I think it took me a while to get into the pregnancy. I didn't even have a pram once the baby was born. It was my mother-in-law who went, Mary, you need to get your head around the fact. Because <laughs> I just got to, yeah, I'm working. I've got to get this ready. And she came around and she's like, where is all the baby stuff? And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll do it. But also as such an entrepreneurial person and a real go-getter and proactive person, a baby is a really strange thing. And I, I say this in a few of the other episodes where it is a little bit of a bomb sometimes going off in your life because it just throws all of your plans out the window but particularly if it's not necessarily planned and I'm sure that there was a certain amount of denial going on there purely because you probably were aware of how much it was going to change everything yeah do you know and I think (laughs) 
I think the answer is I should have been aware to genuinely <laughs> think. You know, I I can look back on big chunks of my life and think you were seriously messed up in a bubble, Mary, that was beyond <laughs> reality. Because I can create a world in my head that I just live in. And I think also because I was a part-time mum to these three boys, the youngest I'd known since I was a baby, I felt that I think I didn't question whether I could do it in the physical sense of raise a child. I think what I didn't realise is that full-time mum, it's a very different thing to being a part-time stepmom. And I should have known, but for some reason I think that hadn't landed, which saddens me a bit. My ex was so calm and I thought, oh, he's gone through this so many times. And I saw him really as my North Star. I thought his ex-partner had had a children's nursery for years. He'd been there for three boys. What I realised over time is how he hadn't been that present when they were very young. So, and they'd had pairs and nannies and, and again, I've no issue with that. We had no pair and we had childcare support. And I think if you need help, get it. But I wanted to be present for my son. I think I let him make too many choices in terms of what our early parenting years would look like. Your partner at the time. Yeah, my partner at the time. He was very much from birth. We're going to get an au pair. And I was like, oh, but I can do this. And he was like, no, we're going to get an au pair. We're going to get some help. And I think that's when I started to lose control because I didn't have the confidence or the strength to really voice what I wanted or to even know, I think, what I wanted. So I think part of this daze and haze of just blindly going through it really stemmed from this childhood of just having other people take control of my life, whether it be my parents, whether it be the school, wherever. It was like somebody was always making decisions for me. And that happened until somebody would just ask me. So his mum would ask me, like, have you got this? But without those external questions coming in, I was literally just reacting in the moment, just in the moment until somebody said, Mary, you need to do this. And that's how it was. I love how you put that, the days and haze, because that is exactly what it is like in the beginning. It really is just days going by and you are just in a massive haze. And I think that postnatal mental health is unbelievably linked to that disempowerment feeling. And obviously it's different for everybody, but certainly for myself, I definitely suffered with PND quite badly for all sorts of reasons that's detailed in other episodes. But I felt very disempowered from Mm. my journey of motherhood and I can imagine having that suggestion of an au pair very early on is so well-intentioned and even as I listen to it I think oh that would be good just to have some help from the very beginning but I can also understand particularly with your background particularly with what you've just been through that would be really disempowering. It was disempowering and it was also it was hard because you mentioned depression At the time, I didn't realise how severely depressed I was during the pregnancy and post-pregnancy. So I had been throwing up most of the time up until a few weeks before giving birth. I didn't learn about that until, I think, was it somebody in the royal family had suffered? Yes, Kate Kate Middleton. That was right. And I was like, oh my gosh, there was a name. I couldn't even keep water down at one point. So they were worried about dehydration and everything. When you're running a business, that is, you just can't. And my ex started to get very frustrated. And I felt very inadequate because his ex-wife was literally working up until the day she dropped. And I can remember almost feeling this sense of, gosh, I'm failing because 
I'm not able to just keep going throughout. And then I went through a phase where I did ease up probably about six weeks before I gave birth. And then I went through this phase where I was just addicted to milk and steak. So I was just (laughs) drinking eight, nine pints of milk every day. And and the local gastro pub would make me out a steak and peas every day after work. And it was the only two things I could keep down. And I was two weeks late. Yeah. Oh my God, Mary. And at the time, my partner then had an affair with the au pair. Sorry. Yes. What? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, do I say this or don't I say this? And it was awful. It was really awful. And I was so numbed out through the whole thing. I actually just didn't care. I felt really fat. And he'd say things that were actually incredibly mean, but he just wasn't aware of the, just the nastiness behind his words, because actually it's really hard. I believe we can be many things at the same time in a single moment. And here you are with somebody that's got such a big heart, but for whatever reason, when they drop into this space, they can also be incredibly mean. And I can remember at that time, he was just like, I love you, but I'm just not attracted to fat people. That used to be his comment. Oh my God. Yeah. And so you can just imagine when you're being sick, you're throwing up. I was 21, so young, no real life experience. Everything I'd placed almost on him as being this guide. And you're getting all of these negative messages back about your body, about your abilities, just about who you are as a woman and a mother. And it was just horrific. It was really horrific. And I just felt so ill. And then he was late and it was just nearly two weeks where they were worried and I had high Mm. blood pressure and everything. So they just admitted me and said, we've got to keep an eye on you. And I was induced three times. So I just went from nothing to full on contractions. It was so, you know, you have that birthing plan, which I always say, such a lie. Whoever thought that was was a real thing? (laughs) I was really hating on everything. I was like cursing that woman on the poster with her baby with a cloud on her head. I was like, bitch, that oh, is such yeah. a lie. <laughs> <laughs> Go away, you are so not true. <laughs> oh, God. And I've heard inductions can be so brutal because it's just that syntocin drip, isn't it? And then it just literally happens from naught to 60 it's... in a second. I have no experience of this, but I've heard plenty of people talk about it. It just sounds so awful. It is really. And at the time, they gave me this tablet where they just insert inside you and it starts your contraction. So thank God I didn't have the drip. And then she did it again. And then she did it again. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss throughout most of my parenting years. <laughs> because <laughs> I was in the hospital and she came along and she said, you're one centimeter dilated and I was like oh brilliant <laughs> then, like at the end of the day she came around and she said oh you're still one centimeter and I was like oh that's okay I can live with it the next morning she came she said mm, you're still one centimeter so she said we're going to induce you and I said like, okay that's fine in my head I thought I had to get to zero <laughs> so, no. I know this was I didn't pay any attention to any of the classes I just thought were, you start at 10 you go to zero my friends was like are you stupid? <laughs> I oh. thought she meant I've got one centimetre left. <laughs> she was like, no. I just shut down and created this space where I could survive. And I had full-on contractions for two days. I was in the bath and I was on my own. So my ex turned up, dropped some stuff off and left. And he was my designated person. And it just went downhill from there. And 
ended up with his heart stopping and having to have an emergency C-section. Oh my God. And it was, yeah, it's just, yeah, it was memorable. It just sounds like the whole experience was just unbelievably traumatic and for, for all sorts of reasons, but particularly the emotional state. And when your stress is running high or your adrenaline's flowing and then that works against you when you're trying to give birth. So then you'd had a C-section, had this beautiful little person now in your life, but also big deal to be living with the aftermath of an affair. And you said that you can continue to feel very down after you had your son, but it just sounds like it was an unbelievably traumatic time. And how did you get through that first year? Yeah, it was hard. I won't lie. It was really hard because I was severely depressed and that's what annoyed me. They gave me, is it pethidine or pethidone? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. It was horrible. And the second they gave it to me and his heart stopped. People are talking around you. I remember them holding my hand, getting me to sign stuff. I couldn't even hold the pen. I wanted to be awake. I wanted to try and capture some of that experience. The whole thing was messy. And I can remember waking up in agony, just happy he's alive because I fell asleep knowing his heart wasn't beating. But you're physically in so much pain. Um, I couldn't breastfeed because of the amount of drugs I had going through my system. They lost all my papers. I was discharged in the wrong way. They didn't come and check up on me. It was one thing after another. They gave him jabs without my permission, which made him ill. So getting home in and of itself was a a big deal and nowhere near some of the stories we hear about even your journey and so I think you're so happy to be home Mm. and to have your baby home even if you haven't got a clue what you're doing just being home was such a big deal but coming home and still dealing with the aftermath of the effects that hadn't finished and so breastfeeding was awful just too much milk so it became traumatic I could feel 20 bottles just sat there holding the bottles to my boob and putting one down and just holding another one no pump, nothing. It would just... Oh, my God. I couldn't leave the house because I would be drenched in milk. I had to wear dressing gown and bathrobes. And at one point, I'd even strapped, like, sanitary pads to my boobs to try and absorb the amount of milk that was just constantly flowing. And I just spiralled. I was very isolated. I just spiralled into this real depression. I was semi-functioning. So going through the motions but dead inside. And was there a particular moment that made you realise and say, this is a real problem, I am depressed? Because a lot of people don't realise that's the state that they're in at that time. So was there a particular point for you? I mean, the the big thing around my story is that I actually ended up trying to kill myself and my son. So I found myself one morning, I didn't wake up thinking, I'm going to kill myself and my son. I woke up that morning thinking, oh, I'm finally just going to get some peace. He's a gorgeous baby, but never slept through the night. Maybe I'd get 20, 30-minute bursts, and that was the longest he would sleep. So also sleep-deprived without realising it. And I can just remember being on the edge of that bridge, just feeling calm, like this sense of this will all be over soon. And the logic behind wanting to take him with me was that I just felt nobody could love him or care for him more than I could. I felt the world was just this awful place, full of pain. And without someone protecting him, it just was unbearable to think about. 
And sleep deprivation. I know that everybody knows that, yes, when you're a parent, you're sleep deprived, but it can make you absolutely out of your tree in terms of how you feel psychologically. And I think that postnatal depression and everything around that is so linked to sleep. It's so linked. And I think that people don't quite make that connection in the same way. I think they just think, oh, well, it's your hormones and you've just had a baby. There's yeah. a reason why sleep deprivation is a torture method. Yeah, exactly. When I look back on it, I was also trying to still keep the business going. We still had the boys with us sort of part time. My ex was still having this affair. And that actually made it clear he was physically repulsed by me because of the weight gain and everything. So you're battling with, it feels like all sides. And my mum was present, but I'd had such an awful relationship with her growing up. She just couldn't help every time. I just wouldn't see her because it was just a long list of everything that was going wrong. So all of these things, I think when you're dealing with your identities being compromised and eroded away, you're not sleeping, you're responsible for a new life, there's other children in the house, you're trying to juggle a business. It was insane. It was insane and not surprising I ended up there. And my friends saw it, but they couldn't get through. A couple of good friends, one in particular, was trying to get through, but she was constantly mm-hmm. worried. So um, what got you off the bridge in the end? Do you know, I had quite an, a religious upbringing. I'd say I'm more spiritual than religious. I don't particularly practice anything. But I definitely there was definitely something greater than myself that pulled me away. And the bridge, I've walked that bridge several times it's normally dead at that time in the morning. I'm an early person. But there were people out, there were tourists. There were just things that just were constantly hitting up against me, being able to do it. You know, I always joke in this sort of sick, twisted way that trying to jump off a bridge is not easy. It's not like the movies. It's actually quite high, I'm quite short. It was insane, Tish. You know, I was laughing, crying, and I think something just snapped where it was like, what the hell are you doing? This voice came in get off this bridge now. And I remember just sitting down on that side of the bridge and it was such a wake-up call that you cannot live your life like this. You just cannot. And I remember seeing somebody on their way to work. They worked in a restaurant. They had all the checkered pants, the chef's pants on. And I can remember thinking, it's really early. Why are they going to work this early? Yeah, they're going to prep. They're going to prep. I think in that space of realising that Mary, you're not prepping. You are not giving yourself space. Everything is full on. You're drained. You're hanging on. And my analogy was I was living this fast food life. It was just survival, grab and go. And I thought, what would it take for you to feel like you were living this fine dining life where you prepped and there was like, you really gave yourself just chance to land and connect. And I had no idea how. I just started to journal and ask myself questions. And over the years, the questions came and I started to just pour out everything. And it was several years later, I realised I was suffering from postnatal depression. I didn't have a clue that's what it was in the moment. Did not have a clue. And it sounds like it was almost postnatal psychosis. Mm -hmm. I mean, standing on a bridge and laughing, crying, all of the different things happening at that time, it sounds like you almost had a psychotic break. Absolutely. It was surreal. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. And, and I'm, I'm, as I say, mid to late 40s. 
So it was different time then. The education and the knowledge and the information just wasn't around and there wasn't the awareness that there is now. Even if I knew what I was going through, I wouldn't have known where to go or where to get help. It was not in my awareness. Even within our sort of NCT class and all of that, nobody was talking about it. It was only later on I found some others suffering from depression and struggling, but it took a long time even in our group. And we were quite a tight group of mums, four or five of us, before anyone really opened up about what they were dealing with. So if we'd only had an ounce of the awareness that there is today, I I really question or I'm curious as to how different my experience and journey would have been. The awareness of mental health now is just completely different. And I know that ties a lot to what you're doing now. You said it was a huge turning point in your life where you're like, am I going to live this grab and go instant everything life anymore? And that must have really shaped what you were doing professionally after that. Yeah, and I have to say, this is something I want to share. It took a long time and it's still something I have to work on, really have to work on because I have a tendency to burn out and my nature is to go at things 100 miles an hour when I love it. It was a practice. And I'm talking about years of having to catch myself and to put things in place. So my journey was like my therapist, my books, my journals were, it's almost like I was counselling myself through it. But... I think sometimes we put this pressure on even when we are aware of something or have been diagnosed that this is it, that things should suddenly change. And sometimes that's not the case. A diagnosis can bring relief. It can bring an explanation. It can also bring different kinds of support sometimes. But it doesn't mean it's not a struggle still. And it doesn't mean you're not every day having to battle these demons and consciously apply yourself. So for some, it can be a real quick turnaround. But for many, and I know for myself, it has been a lifetime's struggle and battle and still is something I have to constantly be conscious of and work on. So, yeah, I don't want to sell a magical pill because that would just be such a lie and unfair. After that episode on the bridge and going through everything you've been through, I I totally agree with you that there's no easy kind of cures for mental health. But motherhood sounds like it just changed you. Yeah, it's a gift. As I said, that bridge was painful but needed. So what it did that moment was an invitation to step into being a mother. And there were lots of magical moments. And the magical moments grew more and more. The sort of darker, harder moments softened. I know sometimes when you're in it, you can feel like there is no light at the end of the tunnel. So I had to battle a lot of it on my own. I think if you can get some help and just have the courage to speak up, really having that support can make a world of difference. Was there a point that made you feel like I've come out the other side of this now? When he started to sleep through the night, which happened the first time he slept through the night was when he was four. Um, oh my God. <laughs> I know. And, and, and I say that to people, and they're like, oh my gosh, Mary. But for me, I remember it was like a miraculous moment. And it's so much so I put my finger under his nose to check he was breathing because I'd never had him not wake up in the night. And he slept, I think it was six hours, which may not sound a lot for most, but for me, it was like heaven. And my whole life changed, but it happened in spurts. It also, I can remember a great turning point was when he was weaned um, that was another 
great moment because this whole stress of feeling breast is best and all of that, I just couldn't do it. And I'd had to transition onto formula milk way early than my plan and dream. And I was just drowning in guilt. So I think when he moved onto solids, that changed because I felt that time was over and I could make peace with the fact that I just hadn't been able to breastfeed him in the way I'd wanted to. It was like a whole new chapter opened when he slept through the night. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I'm just, I'm slightly speechless. That's not giving me hope. No. <laughs> and there's one thing I'd love to add to that to anyone who's listening is if you are in a position to do so and you have a friend that has a baby that is struggling with sleep, I tell you what, the best gift you can give them is babysitting for a night so that they could sleep. <laughs> I could not agree more. Yeah. I could not agree more. It's just, it, it, it is priceless. So you said that you were trying to get through postnatal depression, trying to get through the fact that your ex-partner was still having an affair and going through that body image and relationship mm. crisis and running the business. Obviously, you do something really quite different now. So where did your professional <laughs> journey take you after that? Yes. So I trained initially as a volunteer to work with young people, primarily young care leavers and young people going through crisis or transition. Because one thing I knew is that if I hadn't have had the childhood that I had, I wouldn't have made some of the choices that I made. And, you know, I love my ex-partner for who he is as a person, but he's not the person I would have chosen to have raised a child with and gone on some of the journeys with for various reasons. So I wanted to be that support to young people who were just finding themselves and on that transition from late teens into early adulthood to just help them know who they are. A lot of the stuff I shape my work around is around purpose, power, presence and play just to have fun. Because I do find that as women, we tend to put a lot of pressure on ourselves as to how we need to be, sometimes trying to be perfect. And with these different images, we can sometimes have bring labels or judgments. And I think we can also just lose a sense of who we are and also respond to a world that sometimes rejects you as a mother, especially if you've been in a certain career and have been successful. And I've got quite a few friends who've had to journey through being rejected by their workspace on this career path and almost been treated as less than because they took time off to have a child, which infuriates me, absolutely infuriates me because I tell you what, if you've raised a child, you can run a company. So (laughs) don't even come to me like, oh, you don't meet our requirement. Take my child for a week and you come back and tell me that I couldn't run this company. It's just so true. Yeah, so, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just annoys me. And you know what? It really annoys me when other women do that. We have a duty to support each other. And so, so yes, yeah, so I'm really passionate about working with women to find themselves and tap into their power and find their voice and bring that presence. And was that something that you had started to look into directly as a result of your experiences? When you're good at something, but you don't love it. I just always felt like an alien in that world. We were in property and relocation and business development. And then I used to go into work saying to my ex, I really don't like this. And he was like, well, do you want the children to not have the school, the education and the lives? It was always on if you want to have this lifestyle and you want to give this to the kids, then you're going to have to do something that brings in this amount of money. And mm. we're lucky that we've got our own business. And we were lucky. But that experience on the bridge and being a mother and actually going through a lot of pain 
was pulling me to want to give back in that way. So I even started a childcare agency to try and match families and mums with affordable childcare that could help them through those early years. So it started off moving in more into that space and then mm. talking to those mums and getting to know them. I was like, okay, how can I open this up? So then I volunteered. And then when my son was six or seven, I trained as a coach and yeah, and actually left my partner for a year. The two of us lived together in this tiny little flat in Fulham. And it was a real eye opener how much I'd lost myself in that relationship. And so this path of wanting to discover who I was as a person also opened up and became more in my coaching of what does purpose really mean? What does connection really mean? And it actually broke my heart not that long ago. My son said that was the happiest year of his life was when it was just the Mm. two of us. And he'd never said that to me before, but he said he'd wanted me to leave for years because he could just feel how unhappy I was. And that's when I just knew who I was that year. And it's just so important to to not lose yourself in the role of a mum or the role of a, a working woman or the role of whatever it is to really know who you are. So you went back to your ex-partner, but it sounds like you went back with a lot more strength and clarity. That relationship has always been a roller coaster of amazing highs. And I think I was still addicted to the highs and when he was really engaged it was phenomenal absolutely phenomenal so I think in that year out strangely enough as I started to know myself and I lost weight in some ways I think my ex seeing me come alive reminded him of the person that he had fallen in love with when we first met and so yeah so I came back into it a different person and it almost came full circle where we were able to heal a lot of things but I got to the point where I thought, do you know what, this is done now. We're in a good place, the best place we've ever been in, but we're in different places and it's taken us 17 and 18 years to get here. <laughs> and we had just become best friends and that wasn't enough for me. No, but such a huge deal to be able to be like, your roots have been intertwined for this long, but it's time to disentangle ourselves now and move on. Yeah, totally. When you look back on so this girl had never fully lived on her own. She'd gone from foster care to birth parents to teachers to a couple of years in Holland crashing, but she didn't know who she was without another person intimately in her life. But it sounds like you're work has been something that has absolutely carried you through all of this and having real purpose behind what you do for a living I think makes such a difference to your life and what I really like about your story Mary is that because when Mary and I first decided whether we were going to do this or not Mary said well my son's quite a lot older and I don't know how relevant this is but actually it's so valuable to hear somebody's journey who's really been through it and come out the other side and also to hear from someone who says it took me a while to figure out what I really wanted to do and you were saying oh my son was seven Some people listening will still be stuck in that corporate job that they feel totally unappreciated in, et cetera, with maybe a toddler or two at home. And I think it gives people a lot of hope. You know, I hope so. I really hope so. And I think 
Yeah, and I wasn't sure because I've listened to your show and it's fantastic. And I was like, gosh, I'm an ancient mum. I'm not. But I think it, it does help, especially if you're in a, the thick of a challenging time. It does get better. And I can say that with confidence because I've seen enough in life to know that the bad never stays bad forever. It's just life is not made up that way. It's, an, it's almost an impossibility. So as long as you do what you can, as I say, whether it's reaching out to allow some space for some help to come in, and it doesn't have to be an epic thing that you do, but it can bring an epic result in terms of just supporting you. And it's such a rich experience when you're then able to take those lessons and learnings from being a mum, which is probably one of the greatest leadership trainings you will ever have, is having to nurture and grow and develop another human being. One thing I learned is purpose doesn't come from what you're doing. Purpose comes from being alive, from just knowing that you are worthy. So like this purpose and worth thing, you don't have to earn either. You don't have to search for either. We're worthy because we're born. It's not in something external. It's not in this job gives me purpose or this thing gives me purpose. Because when that goes, we attach our worth and our sense of purpose to that thing in the same way that we can overly attach parts of who we are to another person in a relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm listening slightly agog because I've definitely been somebody that attached a lot of purpose to what I was doing or my job title or my salary, etc. And for me, it was just the biggest revelation ever when I realized that it wasn't all about that. So I couldn't agree more. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. And this is the problem with Mary Daniels. I just want to carry on talking to you. But before we go, other than your book, Wild Awakening, um, The Nine Questions That Saved My Life, which I couldn't recommend more. It's just such an incredible story from Mary. Is there anything else that you want to shout about before we go? Yes, shouting about you, Tish, which I think this has just been such, (laughs) seriously, it's been such a magical and beautiful conversation. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Tish. Honestly, thank you. I'll put all of Mary's details on Instagram and also Twitter as well. And just make sure that you get behind whatever she's doing because everyone who knows Mary just knows that she's a living legend. So anyway, (laughs) thank you so much, Mary, for your time. And I'll speak to you soon. See you soon, I hope. Yeah, see you soon. And it takes one to know one, my dear. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you made it. We've reached the end enjoyed it drop me a note on instagram or twitter at new leaf podcast or better yet do me a quick rating on itunes have a lovely day and if you're a parent have an even better night bye everybody